whoa, what? You guys, how you doing? Yeah, yeah. Guys, all that stuff we just saw in that skit, which was incredible, we will, we will see in the Bible tonight. It's just not going to be dogs. It's going to be people. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I know, I know. No, Maximus, the guy with the little puff, right? We're going to see him in the Bible. Mittens, the kitten that almost made that one guy throw up. We're going to see her in the Bible tonight. The pup who is the master, we're going to see him in the Bible tonight. It's going to be good, okay? Um, and uh, so far, I want you to just realize with me, We've established that God is true, that he's the source of truth. This morning we talked about the fact that he gives us his true and trustworthy word, the Bible, that special thing that's sitting in your lap, but why? You may or may not know this, but the entire Bible in one way or another actually points to Jesus, like this big, bright red blinking arrow, like boop, boop, like it's the most important thing that God wants us to know. He puts Jesus in front of us because through Jesus we get to see what God is like. We get to see what God thinks of us, how God interacts with us, what he wants a relationship with us to look like. So it's very important that when we look at Jesus, we're constantly trying to understand what does this mean that I can understand about who God is, right? And as we look at these passages tonight, I want to invite you to be careful. Because if you're not careful, I imagine, especially as kids who are coming from Christian schools, we read these fantastical-seeming fairy tales about Jesus, and if you're not careful, it just seems like, oh, good story. But I want to remind you, these things that we're looking at tonight are real. Remember, the reason we're reading this stuff is because we're interested in truth, in the life and teaching of Jesus. And did you know that Christians and non-Christians alike agree that Jesus is a real historical figure. He's, it's, there's, there's tons of writings outside the Bible that document him existing as a man. In fact, the Bible paints a, a pretty clear picture of Jesus. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, in Matthew 13, 55, we're told that Jesus was taught the trades of his father as, as a carpenter. And in their Greek language, that word is tecton, like tectonics, like plates, like, like massive stones, Right? And if in your head you've ever pictured Jesus as a, as a carpenter, as a builder, like sawing lumber, Bible scholars say it may have been a little bit different because in the area that Jesus lived, there weren't a lot of trees around, but there was a stone quarry next to his little town. And so Jesus, trained by his father, probably spent a lot of time mastering the art of chiseling rocks into just the right shape picking up heavy stones, laying down mortar, placing them where they need to go. I don't know if you've ever seen, like, maybe been to Yosemite and seen those massive rock walls. It's like art, you know? They're cutting them perfectly to fit where they go. And most houses where Jesus lived were actually built out of stone. And so Jesus, the one the whole Bible points us to, was likely a man who's skilled in a trade, with rough hands, very strong, and hardworking. I don't know. I think that's pretty cool. And I'm going to invite you to turn to John chapter 4, which is where we're going to start reading tonight. But before we read there, I want to catch you up in some things that happened before John chapter 4. Like in John chapter 2, there's an interaction between Jesus and his mom. Jesus, his mom, and the disciples, they all get invited to this young couple's wedding, right? And back then, the way a wedding worked was a whole town was invited, and it was like this week-long festival, and Jesus' mom comes to him at a certain point, and she's like, 
Jesus. <laughs> Did your mom ever be like, honey, can you do something for me? And then she gives you the eyes, right? And Please. You guys, did your mom ever do that? That's kind of what she's doing to Jesus. And she's like, listen, this young couple at their, at their week-long festival, this milestone moment in their life, they've run out of wine. And Jesus is like, I'm paraphrasing. Jesus is like, mom, <laughs> you know. And she's like, can you please just help them? And Jesus goes, okay. And so his very first miracle is he turns 180 gallons of water into wine. Boop. And you're like, that's weird. Why, why is that even in the Bible, right? But I love what it reveals as we're looking at these things just to understand what is God like. Jesus wanted this milestone moment for this young couple. He wanted them to be able to celebrate, right? He didn't want them to have to experience the embarrassment of, oh, we ran out. Now we have to cut the festival. This embarrassment is going to follow us for the rest of our lives in this little town. People are going to know us. It's like, oh, yeah, you're the guys that couldn't even throw a wedding. No, Jesus wanted them to have this special moment, which means what? God cares about people. God is for us, and he gives good gifts. I love that we get that cool little snippet of that. In John chapter 3, we see Jesus interacting with this guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is this, like, fancy guy, well-regarded in his town, well-respected, highly educated. And he comes to Jesus, and he's like, oh, Jesus, I see that you are a big deal much like me. Seems like people really respect you. Seems like you're, you're godly and you got your life together, just like me. It's as if he's saying, look, Jesus, we're the same. You can kind of be in my club. This legacy life that I'm building as a social elite, you can be a part of my life. And Jesus is just to explode that whole idea to show him, no, 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 no. I want you to understand how a relationship with God works. And it's not like that. I'm not interested in just being added on as a part of your life. And so he says, Nicodemus, listen, buddy. Our relationship is not equal to equal. It's not, hey, let's hang out. Hey, take some advice if you want. It's, you're a baby, bro. If you want to have a relationship with me, it's like you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? And he goes, yeah, essentially, you have to hit the reset button. We're not equals. You're a baby. You have to abandon the life that you've built, show up fully dependent on me, and say, I'm here. I'm ready. I need you to take care of me. Help me build this life all over. And Nicodemus goes, uh, <laughs> that's not what I thought you'd say. And again, it shows us what God is like and what he wants in the terms of our relationship with him. And that brings us to John chapter 4. If you're there, please go, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, guys, great job. All right, we're going to start. At verse 4, and, and the person that Jesus is about to interact with, I want you to picture back in our skit, this lady is Mittens. Okay, are you ready? All right, here we go. In verse 4 it says, Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. And in verse 6 it says, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, now, you might see this stuff and go, oh, okay, yeah, that's a bunch of information. Who cares? But I, I love this because it's just a little glimpse into Jesus' humanity. The sixth hour is noon, and this area, <laughs> in terms of climate, is kind of like Fresno. What is Fresno at noon like? Yeah, guys, it doesn't matter how many layers of antiperspirant deodorant you're wearing. You are going to have some whoop, sweat rings, you know what I'm saying? So Jesus is tired. He's sweaty. He's been walking. He plops himself down on this, on this well ledge, and he's like, whoo, I'm pooped. And, and I love it. Jesus is just in his humanity, fully God, fully man, just sitting here sweating. And it's interesting that he's in Samaria. 
Do you know that most Jewish people would never go near Samaria? If they had to go somewhere on the other side of Samaria, they wouldn't go through it. They'd go around it. And this lady's actually surprised that Jesus is even there. In verse 7, it says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, Wait, you, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Guys, you have done such a good job digging deep in this nerd stuff with me. Can we do that a little bit right now? Yeah? yeah? Deal. All right. So, I have some controversial things to share with you, okay? So, here's the deal. Jewish people back in the day, their view towards Samaritans was, I don't know how to say it, they were like racist, okay? And I'm not bashing anybody, I just hear it, understand this, okay? The Samaritans at a certain point in history were conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians took all of the healthy, able-bodied, strong people with them as slaves, as captives, but that wasn't all of the Samaritans. They left behind the Samaritans who were too old to work, who were too sick to work, who had some deformity or disability and couldn't work. And so Samaria literally became this town of people who were unwanted, who were viewed as less than. And over time, they started intermarrying with other cultures as they, as they were separated and excluded from the Jew, Jewish people and their religion. They started to kind of change some things in the way that they did their religion, and the Jews began to despise them. There are, there are many historical writings that it was not uncommon for if a Jew came in contact with a Samaritan, they would just straight up spit on them. Like this is the lowest of the low class. And this lady's surprised right now because someone like Jesus, she would be used to no interaction. If there's any interaction, it would be spit. Right? And so Jesus is surprising her that he's even having a conversation with her. What's more, in Jesus' position as a teacher or as a rabbi, someone like that would never, ever interact with a woman. In that day and age, many cultures viewed ladies as less than, as property. They were sexist. So there's like multiple reasons that this lady would never have an interaction with Jesus. And yet, He's breaking those boundaries. He's stepping past those things, and he's showing up with kindness, with presence, with love, and he's engaging her. Verse 10, Jesus answered her. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So he asked her for a drink. She's like, whoa, what's happening here? And then he's like, actually, I have some water that you probably want. And now she's like, what? What are you talking about? I feel like right now what she's doing is she's trying to feel out if he's a crazy guy. You know what I mean? Like maybe he has broken these social norms because like he, uh, he's kind of spaced, uh, spaced out, you know? And she like asked this interrogation question to see what kind of guy is this that's talking to me right now? Verse 11. She goes, sir... You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Abraham? So she's like, listen, I'm standing next to a well. You have to have a long rope. You have to have a bucket. You don't have any of those. And you're saying you got your own water that's better? Like, like what? This is like tap water, and you have some secret spring I don't know about that has like electrolytes, like it's Gatorade. Like what? What? Who? I think you're a crazy guy. Like, I wonder if she thinks he's, I had this, interaction where I was walking into a McDonald's in LA and there was a man standing next to the door with not very many clothes on and he looked at me and he said, I am the Lord and he hissed at me, <sighs> you know. I wonder if she thinks she's having one of those interactions. <laughs> but Jesus is about to blow her mind and go, oh no, 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 no. We're having a very different 
kind of interaction, okay? This is the mind bomb that he drops. I, I love this. In verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water in this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She doesn't understand. But he is now giving, he's not talking about water. He's giving her this analogy. And he's talking about something similar that we talked about this morning. He's saying, in this life, everything will leave you thirsty. Nothing will satisfy you. As you go to try to satisfy yourself with the applause of other people, with the pleasures of life, with all these things, you're going to end up thirsty every time, needing more, never satisfied. And the only one who can satisfy you is standing right in front of you. I designed you so that I would be the only one who could quench the thirst of your soul. Guys, I, I have a mentor who said something that was really profound to me. He said, people who don't know Jesus have to live for love, and people who know Jesus get to live from his love. People who don't know Jesus wake up every morning empty, loveless, thirsty. It's why they have to go out and impress other people and get other people's approval to take love from them so that they can feel full again. But it goes away and they end up thirsty, right? But what Jesus is saying of himself as the spring of living water is with me, you don't wake up empty every day. You wake up full of my love. You already have access to everything that you need in Jesus, the one who quenches the thirst of your soul, which means if you're starting every day already filled up with love, you don't have to go out in the world and get it. You don't have to go impress other people or be insecure and worry about what they think anymore. You're fine the first moment that you wake up because Jesus gives you all the love you need. He's not talking about water. But she doesn't get that. She's like, mmm, that water sounds good. Give me some of that. In verse 16, he told her, well, go call your husband and come back. And she goes, I have no husband. As if to say, aha, I knew you were crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. But then he blows her mind again. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. <laughs> what do you think this lady did when he said this? Like, she's, she's probably got her arm crossed, like, I have no husband. And then as he's talking, she's like, <laughs> how do you know all these things about me, right? That's kind of what Mitten said in the skit. She's like, he, kn he knew everything I ever did. That's exactly what this lady said. And guys, she's, it seems like she's so uncomfortable and so embarrassed. He, he knows not just everything about her. He somehow knows the absolute worst things about her. And in her uncomfortability, it seems like she kind of tries to change the subject. She's like, uh, well, she makes it about some abstract theological thing. You know, some people say we should worship this way over here and you. Have you ever been so embarrassed that someone knew something about you that you did not want other people to know that you didn't know what to do with yourself? Yes? Raise your hand if you have. Guys, I also have. When I was in elementary school, 
I spent the night at my next door neighbor's house. We were friends. We were the same age. And his older brother had just got this giant, massive California King bed and these new video games. And so we were like, we're just going to hunker down in that room, eat pizza, eat snacks, play video games until our eyes bleed. It's going to be awesome. And so we do. We play video games way late into the night. And then, you know, we're little kids on this huge bed. So he sleeps way over there. I sleep over here. We're like, we're like, we're on an island. And we, and we go to sleep. And I remember waking up, walking to the bathroom, except it was a dream. I didn't get up. I actually wet the bed. <laughs> and I woke up horrified like, this is his older brother's new mattress and he's right there. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And so I like go clean myself up and then I just lay on the ground. And then I get so tired that eventually I, I fall asleep. It's great now because I'm sleeping. And then when I wake up, I realize, <gasps> that actually happened. This is actually my life. And I don't say anything. We, instead of hanging out and playing more video games and eating breakfast with their family, I'm like, uh, I got to go home and do chores. And I run out the front door and I just leave. And guys, I remember watching out the front window as his mom dragged that brand new mattress out the front of their house while yelling at Jason because she thought he wet the bed. And what's worse, he woke up and... Uh, there was some moisture right here. He thought he was the one that wet the bed. And now the mattress is on the front porch drying. And I'm going, I'm a sinner. What have I done? <laughs> you know? And guys, eventually, Jason found out it was me. And like this lady, I was like, oh, just so uncomfortable. I don't know what to do. I'm so embarrassed. But for her, it was way worse. It wasn't just this, oh, that's embarrassing. This is her deepest shame, her greatest regret and guilt, right? And Jesus has, has showed her, I know everything about you. And it starts to become apparent why this lady was there at noon drawing water. This was not the cultural norm. Most ladies would go early, together in the day, together to be safe from robbers or someone attacking them, early in the day because it was cool and they would chit-chat with each other and they would help each other pull up the water, right? She's out there alone in the hottest part of the day. Probably the people who would be her peers want nothing to do with her. This lady has been married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced. She has burned relational bridges. People have excluded her. They have judged her. They have disqualified her and ostracized her. If they interact with her at all, they're probably very harsh. This lady is lonely. She's an outcast. And this man, who culturally should have nothing to do with her, has stepped down and given her his time, his care. He's revealed to her that she's known. And then he entrusts her with the most important thing he can entrust her with, not just as a man, but as God. In verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This lady is one of the first people to hear Jesus declare with his own lips, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Logos. I'm the God. He entrusted that to her, to the lowest of the low. And guys, what I, what I want you to see as we learn about the heart of God and how, what he thinks about us and how we interact with him is that God knows everything about you, just like her. He knows the worst parts about you, your shame, your guilt, the things that tear you up at night that you would die if someone else knew. God looks at you like Jesus looks at this woman. And he goes, I know everything about you and you get my time. 
You get my attention. You get my care. And you are safe with me. I love that. I love what this reveals about who God is. We're told in verse 28 that this lady leaves her jar. She's blown away. She believes that Jesus is who he says he is. And she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And in verse 42, we find out that Jesus stayed in that little spot two days, hanging out with this lady and, and, and these people from this town. And it says that they said, we know that this man really is the savior of the world. In verse 42, it was absolutely obvious to them that Jesus is God. And that brings us to Maximus. You remember that guy who's so sad? Just call me Max, that guy, right? We don't have time to read this, but in John chapter 4, verse 42, I believe, we see that story. And, and our guy, Max, he's so desperate. He comes to Jesus and he's begging, my son is sick. There's no way he's going to live much longer. Please, can you rush with me to my house? Can you save him? This man is heartbroken. He's desperate. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And guys, Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. What he reveals here about the heart of God is that God sees us. When you and I feel desperate, when life is hard, he cares. He sympathizes with us. The Logos, the God of the universe, sees our heartbreak, and he empathizes with us. His heart breaks for us in the way that he loves us. I love that little snippet. All right, we're going to go to the next one. Are you down? If you're down, say, yitty, yitty. All right, here we go. Guys, we find ourselves in John chapter 5, verse 2. And this one, we're going to encounter some spicy controversy. Okay, here we go. It says, now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie or lay down, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. What we're going to find out about this man is he's by this pool, this, this little body of water, and people believed back then that whenever this pool would bubble, that if they could get in the water first, they would be supernaturally healed. And I don't know if it was a superstition or maybe it was really real. I don't know. But what I know is this man really wanted to get in there, but every time he would try for 38 years, someone would push him out of the way, step in first, and he couldn't get there. For 38 years, this man has sat in his disability, in his despair, in his defeat, just completely hopeless. Probably like that lady, looked over by everybody, the lowest of the low. And guess what? Jesus, the God of the universe, shows up and has a conversation with him. In verse 6, it says, when, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walked. And at once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Guys, if you couldn't walk for 38 years, and all of a sudden you're like, whee! And you, your legs are like bouncy, maybe you got a little spring in your step, right? Like, like, what would you do? Like, if this man, if I were this man, I don't know, I'd probably be like, I don't even remember what it is to dance. Like, woo! Ha, is, oh, mama, this is great, you know what I mean? Like, let's see if I can do the splits, like, can't, I, I considered trying it, but I think I would tear my groin, you know what I'm saying? Like, 
Oh, here we go. Oh, yeah. I did him. Oh, I did him. Well, I don't know. Some of you cheerleaders in here are like, that does not count. Whatever. Wow, thanks for, thanks for daring me to do the splits. Oh, that was weird. Anyway, look at this. Here's a spicy controversy. If you're ready, say, yeah. All right, verse 16. It says, so... Because Jesus was doing these things, like healing this man on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Guys, it's so obvious to the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus is claiming to be God, doing things like God, and they don't want this to be true, that they're trying to kill him. Do you think they understand? This guy's claiming to be God. Do you think they understand? Yes. And for them, the crazy thing is that they just saw this guy who couldn't walk for 38 years get miraculously healed. And do you know what they're worried about? They're going, um, our rules say that on the Sabbath, once a week, you're not supposed to do any work. And technically, when you, remember that earlier, when you bent down and you picked up your mat like this? That was work. You broke our church rules. What? Are you kidding me? And these, aren't, these weren't rules laid out by God. These were extra rules that they had added. And that's the only thing that they're worried about. What a bunch of jerks, you know what I'm saying? And, and. The spicy controversy is that Jesus goes beyond just hinting at, he, at the idea that he's God. Like, have you ever heard anybody say, you know, Jesus, I believe that he did good things. He was a good teacher, but he never really claimed to be God. Have you ever heard someone say that? <laughs> oh, yeah, you're like, I go to a Christian school. I've never heard anyone say that. Well, here's his claims explicitly right here. Maybe you've never seen them like this, or maybe you're geniuses and you have. I don't know, but we're going to read it either way, okay? Jesus said to these religious leaders... If they weren't furious before, they're about to get more furious. Verse 21. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. He's basically talking about the Trinity, right? God is three persons in one. He's got the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. I'm God. And, and the component of God the Father, he goes, you know what? I'm not even going to judge. I'm going to trust that to the Son who is fully God. Jesus is saying, you religious leaders, you better figure this out because when the world ends and everyone dies, I will be sitting on the throne judging everyone. Do you think they got mad at that? You're darn right they did. But he goes a step further. In verse 28, he says, don't be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. He's talking about himself and come out. Again, he's talking about the end of the world, the resurrection, right? He's like, listen, when this whole thing's over, <laughs> I'm going to be the one, fully God, who goes, wake up. And everybody in every grave will go, oh, what? He is explicitly, clearly claiming to be fully God. There is no doubt. There is no question. Do you think there was a doubt for that man whose son he's healed that he was fully God? No, he proved he had power over life and death, and he's claiming to have the same forward into the future. Jesus made it very clear. He is not just a good teacher. He is fully God. And that brings us to a story about bread 
in John chapter 6. And guys, this one will be deeply significant, but it's my favorite because in my opinion, (laughs) it's hilarious, okay? Here we go. John chapter 6, verse 1. This will be our last one. Here's what it says. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. So he shows up on this lake shore. A bajillion people, 5,000 to be exact, show up to hear him teach, to see what's going to go down. Right? This was our uh, young influencer here who was showing up reporting on the scene. Do you remember this in our skit? Yes? Okay, well, this is the moment that she was talking about. In verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Philip, (laughs) where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? I love this. Verse 6. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Like they're looking at 5,000 people, and he goes, hey, Philip, we're going to be here for a while. Those guys are going to get hungry. Um, How do you think we should feed them? And Philip's thinking, he's like, Let's see, where's the closest Albertsons? How many loaves of bread do they have? Probably probably not enough. And he starts freaking out like, we, I don't know how we're going to do this. The verse 7, Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have one bite. Like even if they had enough in stock, we don't have enough money to afford it. It is literally impossible to feed this many people. And Jesus goes, good, you got it. Now you understand. Brace yourself for the miracle that I'm about to do. Philip, you could call this impossible, maybe even a mission impossible. (laughs) You see what I I did there? I'm not saying it's likely, but it's possible that Jesus played the tin whistle. We'll find out in heaven. Anyway, uh, this next guy, if I were a disciple, I would have made fun of him because listen to the dumb thing that he's about to say. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Hey, uh, Jesus, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? I would have been the sassy bad one going, oh, you're so cute, Andrew. Okay, so there's 5,000 people. And if this little kid's lunchbox was like spread out, it could be a snack for maybe five people. Hmm, let's see, do the math. Okay, we only have 4,995 to go. You big dummy, what are you even saying? You know what I mean? Sorry, I said dummy. I, that's, I apologize to all of you. I know. Listen, guys. Pastors are sinners also. I was just being vulnerable with you, okay? All right. Now it gets good. Jesus said, have the people sit down. In verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. I don't don't know how this miracle happened, but but my weird brain freaks out. Like, if Jesus has, like, he he, he could do anything he wants, right? It probably wasn't like he had 5,000 Lunchables somehow stashed in his pockets, you know? Like, that would have been an amazing feat of strength to drag 5,000 Lunchables behind you, you know? I don't know. Maybe it was a thing where like he had like a smoked fish in his hand and every time he twisted the head off to hand the meat to a person, the body grew back like, and he just keeps twisting like, here you go, here you go. I don't know. 
Like with the bread, maybe it was like one of those magician, like endless handkerchiefs in his sleeve, you know, where he's like, oh. And it says that he kept, he kept giving them more until they had their fill. Like there's a guy sitting on the grass and he's like, actually, my sister's coming. Did I get some from her? And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, sure. Hold on. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Is that enough? And he's like, well, I haven't eaten in like two days. And he's just like, oh, here, take some more. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Do you want some more? And he's like, oh, yeah, here you go. Whoop. And he's just, he's just passing out bread and fish all over the place until... They all had enough to eat, and they had as much as they wanted. I love this because what it reveals about the heart of God. If what God offers you and I is not bread and fish, it's love, it's grace, it's truth, it's identity. We get told here that the heart of Jesus, the nature of God, is generous. That he doesn't just give to us begrudgingly or wait until we obey or perform or are perfect, that God in his gracious generosity gives us more love than we need, more forgiveness than we need, everything more than we need. Like have, have you ever, think about Thanksgiving, right? When you're eating and you eat as much as you can and, you, and someone elbows you and they're like, oh, you need to go get seconds and you get seconds, you're like, Whoa. I am stuffed. This is great. And then your grandma brings out the pie, and she's like, you have to eat my pie. And you're like, I can't offend grandma. And you're so stuffed, not to the point where it hurts, but where, like, a nap is imminent. You know what I'm saying? And then, like, football's on, and you and all your relatives are in the living room, and, like, the old people fall asleep. Just, like, it's the best. Just, that's, that's what this is. Just a generous God giving to them out of his kind generosity. I love it. And then we get this little commercial, okay? We're not done with the bread story, but we get this moment that uh, you're like, I've heard this story before. Yeah, right, I bet you haven't heard this part. Here we go. We're told that uh, the disciples get in their boat and they go to head across the lake. They're about three, three and a half miles in. Jesus doesn't go with them. And all of a sudden, he decides, I'm going to walk on this water. And he starts walking. You're like, yeah, I know, I know. And I picture, like, you know how when you walk on a shallow puddle and it goes, that's probably what, what this lake is for him. He's just like, yeah, ksh, ksh, walking across, you know? And ultimately, he gets out there, and they're terrified. They're like, whoa, how'd you do that? But this is the part you might not know. It says in verse 21, when they were willing to take him in the boat, and immediately, remember, they're in the middle. They're three and a half miles in. Immediately, the boat reached the shore where, where they were heading. What? Like Jesus walks in water, gets in the boat, it does a wheelie like it has an outboard motor and just, ooh, and all of a sudden they're on shore. That's crazy. Why is that in the Bible? Probably because God just wanted to remind you, look it, this is awesome, and I'm awesome. Don't forget it. I am the Lord. You know what I'm saying? All right, that's the commercial. We jump back in at verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed opposite of the shore, now I'm paraphrasing, loved that bread so much that they went, we must have more. And they got in their boats. And they went across the water. And once the crowd, verse 24, realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they headed the other side. They're, they are now stalking Jesus because that bread was so good. Guys, I don't know what you think is the best bread. Maybe you're like, it's Dave's killer bread. It's pretty good. But you're wrong, okay? The best bread in the world is Olive Garden and Limited Breadsticks. Can we agree? Oh, if you're with me, say, woo! Yes! Oh, yes, sure, I'll have another basket of breadsticks. Yes, please, I'll have some more breadsticks. Thank you, Olive Garden, for existing. You are just revealing the gracious, generous heart of God in the best bread ever. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Guys, I'm really excited that, that you also love Olive Garden. 
But this is why this story is my favorite. Look at this. <laughs> they, they show up and Jesus goes, verse 26, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves. He's like, you're not here because you want to know more about God because you're interested in my teaching. You just want some more Olive Garden breadsticks. And in verse, in verse 30, they try to like manipulate the Jesus. They're like, oh, you want to talk about Bible stuff? Okay, we'll talk about Bible stuff with you. You know, um, <laughs> uh, what miraculous sign will you give us so that we may see it and believe you? Our, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. If you're not familiar with what manna is, it was like God made miraculous Pop-Tarts show up on the ground every morning. Yeah, and then they just say it. They go, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Maybe you should give us bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus is like, no, listen. And he tries to teach them. He tries to get them off of the topic of bread. And he's like, listen, it was just an analogy. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. He's like, guys, I'm the bread. I was just trying to tell you that like right when you feel thirsty or empty and bread nourishes you and fills you, that's what I am to you spiritually. You need a relationship with God. That's the only reason I was talking about bread. And they're like, verse 34, sir, from now on, give us this bread. <laughs> And he's like, no, listen, listen, verse 35, he's like getting stern. It says he declared, he goes, he goes, I, it's me. I am the bread of life. Don't you understand? And then in verse 41, it says they begin to grumble. <laughs> what? I don't think this man is going to give us any bread after all. And in verse 43, he's like, stop grumbling among yourselves. And he's, he's like explaining it more. He's like, listen, my body, me, I'm the bread. You have to consume this. You have to, you have to care about a relationship with God. You have to be involved. This is, and they're like, you want us to eat you? You want us to bite your skin? What are you even saying? I know this is what is happening here. And some of them are confused and they're angry because they're not getting bread. And listen, in verse 60, it says, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And in verse 66, it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. One of the things that they did understand clearly is that they're not going to get any more stuff, any more bread, any more entertainment out of Jesus. He has drawn the line and said, I'm revealing you what a relationship with God is like. This doesn't work when your only interest in God is for his stuff. That is not why I came. That's not the relationship that I extend to you. That's not how this works. And guys, this is convicting. Some of us in this room might not even realize it. You may, it's very possible, Christian, that you may have gone most of your life not interested in God, but only interested in his stuff. Listen to this. If you are only a Christian because you want heaven, you want forgiveness of your sins, and you want a clear conscience, do you realize I didn't even list God in there? You may only want his stuff. And God goes, I don't even offer that scenario to you. That's never how I intended this to work. Think about my relationship with my little boys. We were up here about two months ago, and they, they got some fishing line. They would tie it to the end of sticks, and they'd fish bluegill out of the lake over here. And then they'd fill a big bucket with bluegill, and when a boat of girls would come by, they'd just throw the fish at the girls. And I was, I was so proud. I'm sorry, girls. It was awesome. But think about this. <laughs> yep. Guys, I'm raising them right. 
Yeah. But listen, if my little boys came to me and they were like, Dad, we need more hooks. Dad, we need more fishing line. Dad, get us some bait. Get, Dad, go to the store. Also, we need candy. Get us fishing line hooks, bait, candy. Go quickly. We're getting bored. Get us this stuff. Go, please. Dad, we want to throw fish at girls. Go quick. Go. You know what I would say? I would say, you're grounded. Get in the car. We're not even at Hume Lake anymore. Like, this, is, this doesn't work. This is dysfunctional. I am not interested in a relationship with my kids that way. It will never happen that way. And it's not because I'm angry or I'm deciding the rules or whatever. That actually didn't happen. You know what did happen? My, my youngest son just completely warned my dad heart. He said, hey, dad, we're going fishing tomorrow. Can you come? And I went, oh, this is awesome. Why? Because his own words, what he revealed was, his interest was, yeah, fishing was going to be great, but the primary thing he was interested in was being with me. He just wanted to spend time with me. He wanted to be in our relationship, enjoying our togetherness. And God goes, that's it. That's it. Yes, are there a lot of, of, of perks and great things that come from a good father? Yeah, you can fish. Or yeah, you can get forgiveness and there's heaven and God will grow you and, and give you security and stability and hope and freedom and all these things come from him, but they are not the reason we're in a relationship with him. When we hear all these things about what Jesus reveals about God, that he's for us, that he knows everything about us and we're safe with him, that he loves us, and that, like he said to Nicodemus, he, he doesn't just want to be a part of our life. Like he's revealing to these people with the bread, I'm not interested in you just doing this for my stuff like a formula. Christianity, you guys, is us responding to God going, I want to be with you. The thing I'm most excited about is that the God of the universe, the Logos, would, would even entertain interacting with me beyond forgiveness, be even beyond a clear conscience, those just reveal the heart of a good God. Those should just make me want to be with God more, more than wanting those things themselves. And so just like the people then, we have a decision to make. Jesus is not a good teacher. There is no halfway. You can't make Jesus part of your life. Jesus is either the one that you hit the reset button on and you say, I follow you entirely, or he's nothing. There is no middle ground. What do you do with Jesus? Let me pray. God, we love you. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you love us. Amen.